0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Invested, where we
1: talk about wealth as being more than just money. Our partners, Paul Rand, Joel Rand, and Sarah Minikari will bring in guests and industry thought leaders to chat about meaningful topics
2: on personal finances, health and wellness, ideas for your business, tax planning,
3: and other key issues that impact our lives and our livelihood. So thank you for joining us. And we hope you find our discussions not only practical and educational, but maybe sometimes a little thought provoking. With that, let's get to the episode. Today on Invested, we're going to be dipping our toe into the topic of alternative investments. For those investors that are new to our process or who may not have a great deal of experience in this asset class, we're going to be doing a general overview of some of the different types of alternative investments, how they're structured, their costs, and the role that alternatives can play in a portfolio. As most of our clients know by now, at the Rand Group, we've used alternative investments in our allocation process for more than 25 years. And over that time, the industry has changed considerably, as has our use of different investment vehicles in the alternative sleeve of portfolios. So we thought it'd be a good idea to spend a little bit of time talking about what we mean by alternatives and how we use them. To help us with this discussion, we are very lucky to be joined today by Lindley Packer with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Lindley joined J.P. Morgan in 2022 and serves as Executive Director and Alternative Specialist with J.P. Morgan's Asset Management Division. Here, Lindley is the subject matter expert for the Advisory Alternatives Platform and partners with advisors to help them grow their use of private market alternatives. Lindley has over 20 years of experience in asset and wealth management. And prior to joining JP Morgan, Lindley spent 10 years with Wells Fargo where her most recent role, she was the lead alternative investment consultant for their wealth and investment management's key businesses. In this capacity, she partnered with advisors and investors to help them understand alternative investment solutions and how to integrate them into broader portfolios. Her scope of product knowledge and coverage has included real estate, infrastructure, private equity, private credit, hedge funds, and direct private investments. Lindley also spent several years serving as Senior Vice President, Senior Portfolio Manager, and Investment Specialist in Private Wealth Management at Wells Fargo and U.S. Trust, working with high net worth families, foundations, and endowments, and managing over $700 million across a multi-asset class platform. Lindley earned her BS in business from Santa Clara University and has an MBA from San Diego State University. So with that, let's get to our discussion with Lindley Packer and jump into talking about alternatives. Hi, and welcome back to Invested, where today we are joined by Lindley Packer from J.P. Morgan. Lindley, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
3: (laughs) And you're joining us from Colorado.
2: I am in the middle of the mountains in Denver, middle of the mountains on the plains in Denver.
3: So your uh, your capacity to run further and and uh, is much better than ours where we're down at sea level. So.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it really hinders you when you walk up the stairs, though. So I can run faster and farther, but then if I try to go up a level, it's I'm out.
3: <laughs> What's really sad is if we go there and we try and go up the stairs, we have, we
1: have a hard time. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so uh, today we're here to talk about alternative investments. Thank you. Uh, and you are our JP Morgan expert and have done written materials on this. So we kind of want to jump into a lot of different categories and areas of this. But when we look at alternatives and we talk about Alternatives, and sometimes it's called alts, and sometimes it's called AI, and not to be confused with that other AI that you know, <laughs> we'll be talking about later. So before we get too into the weeds, you know, wh- what do we mean by alternatives? What is it? What goes into that category? And how do you sort of define it?
2: And you could also use private investments too, which I I will confuse everyone here today and I'll use private investments interchangeably with with alternative investments. So I, I apologize in advance for that. But generally, when we're talking about alternative investments, it's anything outside of cash, stocks and bonds. And so there are main categories and those are hedge funds and private equity, private debt, private real estate. And then you've got these tertiary real assets categories too like infrastructure or commodities categories like managed futures. And you can also lump option strategies in there as well. And when we talk about each of those in their main categories, hedge funds typically focus on public markets, but they can also include private markets. And they will use more complex investment techniques like derivatives, leverage, commodities, currencies, arbitrage, even bonds in hedge funds to try to outperform public markets. And then when we talk about private markets, private credit, private equity, private real estate, private credit and private equity are investments in private companies. You're either investing on the growth side as an owner or you're giving them a loan and investing in the debt of the private company. And then in private real estate, it's obviously that tangible real estate asset it, that is held uh, privately versus on the public markets.
0: <clears throat> Lindley, you've been in a space for quite a while. What drew you to this particular segment of investment management? 20 years track record. I mean, my goodness. 20 years. Yeah. <clears throat> I, uh, I started my
2: career as when an you're four,
3: obviously. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, two, but thank you. Yeah. Uh, yes, I started my career as an analyst on the private wealth side and then moved into the portfolio management seat. So I was allocating assets, I was managing clients money for high net worth individuals. Part of that time during the financial crisis and through multiple market cycles. And then my last 10 years I've spent, I spent at Wells Fargo before joining JP Morgan last year. And during that time, I held three main positions. I was senior portfolio manager, again, allocating those assets for private wealth on the trust side. And then I moved into a leadership role where I was helping to create our investment strategy and teach advisors and clients about our dynamic investment strategy and platform. And that is where I really honed my love of alternative investment. So I I come by it, honestly. Uh, I then moved into a specialist role where I was creating customized portfolios of alternative investments for our advisors and for our clients. So building those portfolios, you learn a lot of really important lessons. uh, And you also learn how to to communicate those complex strategies in a way that is easy to understand because that's what's most important about the job definitely so
3: and there are lots of terminology we're really good in this industry about out the alphabet soup and we're really good with throwing around terminologies some of that of which we'll we'll go through but i think one of the things we'd like to touch on is you mentioned private investments so there are public and private and there are also we talk about liquid and semi-liquid and illiquid. And we talk about evergreen versus capital call versus private placement. So can you talk a little bit about different structures that are available and alternatives?
2: Sure. So when we talk about alts in the illiquid versus liquid categories, generally in the liquid category, that's your mutual funds. So you can have alternative investments in a mutual fund format. Uh, What happens when you get the mutual fund format because they have to be liquid daily? You get a lot less exposure to private investments. You also get a lot less exposure to some of the other tertiary things like option strategies, or it gets very limited. And so there's a little bit of frustration there when you try to invest in alternative investments through liquid mutual funds because they don't really act the way that you would want an alt to act in a portfolio. In the illiquid structures, you're talking about anything from a hedge fund with monthly or a real estate fund with monthly liquidity to a private equity investment, which may last for 15 years. We have some private equity investments that are 15-year terms with the potential sometimes for extensions on that too. So you really run the gamut from something you can get out of daily to something that you uh, commit to for more than a decade.
3: And there's a trade-off there, right? Because if I want more liquidity, it's harder for the investment manager to make longer-term investments or use longer-term strategies, which generally speaking, have a greater potential return over a long-term, right? So investors, when we go through and we talk about that with them, we talk about, okay, well, what's more important to you, the liquidity or the return, but maybe just talk about the liquidity premium, like what we call it.
2: Sure. And it does, Uh, the illiquidity premium does exist. And so you're absolutely right. What are you giving up in order to get the benefit of of this in the portfolio? Um, And generally that is the liquidity aspect. And so we have looked back over multiple time periods, actually all the way back 25 years, and an allocation to an illiquid investment in private equity outperforms every other asset class by a a minimum of 600 basis points with at least half the volatility. So if you think about that, over 25, 15, 10, 5, 3 years, and 1 year, private equity in an an illiquid format will outperform small cap, international, global equities, S&P, large cap, all of those different sectors, uh, all of those different styles. So and the, and what you're also doing then is because you're locking up capital, that illiquidity aspect, you're not beholden to the daily fear that is, that is bumbled upon investors in public markets where the average retail investor is kind of pressing sell on a day where they feel heightened fear and a lot, then there's a lot of volatility. The fact that you can't get out just reduces that potential for mo- big moves in portfolios and so the half of the volatility that we see it really goes down to in some cases a tenth of the volatility for infrastructure for example it, you an infrastructure investment in private infrastructure you get a tenth of the volatility of equities in some funds
3: and just to clarify by 600 basis points we mean 6% <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody speaks in basis points. I know we love the basis point talk, but
2: (laughs) I could say beeps. That would be (laughs) (laughs) 25
3: bips. Can I hear this? Can I hear that? And I can't remember who it was. And it may have been Warren Buffett that talked about, you know, hey, the difference between looking at liquid markets like equities. And people that own their house, he said, yeah, you know, if my neighbors were all shouting at me throughout the day, I'll pay you this for your house, I'll pay you that for your house, I'll pay you this, that one might be more stressed about the value changing in our own home, but that doesn't happen, right? So that that increase over time that we're not worried about isn't as alarming as what's going on in the daily liquid markets.
0: Right.
2: And in some cases, some of those private investments, they will mark to market, we call it yep. you know, value themselves. Quarterly with a quarter lag. So you're not seeing the value of that investment for six months post yep. whatever happened. And if you look at March of 2020, that was the entire move. Right. <laughs> so,
3: Which, you know, that's one of the, the benefits that we express about alternative investments is that when there is that headline risk mm-hmm. and mom and dad go home from work and are freaked out about what's going on in the news. And they start selling out of everything they have in their mutual funds or their liquid stuff. That impacts the less liquid stuff less, right? So we see less volatility, which is what we're what we're shooting for. Great. So, um, a big question. I mentioned real estate briefly. We get questions about real estate all the time, and and real estate is also a sector now in the publicly traded stock market, right? So when we talk about real estate, let's clarify that a little bit. Are we talking about residential? Are we talking about commercial? What's the difference between private and public and REIT and all that stuff? Can you kind of go into that?
2: Sure. And this has changed dramatically over the last decade, really, um, primarily in the structures of investing in private real estate. But public real estate, you can buy and sell those ETFs. You can buy and sell those indices on publicly traded markets. uh, And you're getting exactly that. You're getting exposure to privately held real estate in a public uh, format and, and so what you get there, and we were just talking about this is more volatility. So you get things that are more correlated to a, a large cap stock. And you're trying with this investment to reduce the volatility or get things that are less correlated. When I talk about correlation, I'm talking about the relationship of how these investments move together in portfolios on any particular day or over a time period. And so things that are uncorrelated mean that they tend to move independently of what you're comparing it to. And then when I talk about inverse correlation, those things tend to move in the opposite direction. So there are investments in in the alt space that move independently that are not correlated to equities. So when equity markets are moving up and down, these tend to be completely uh, neutral or moving on their own, not moving in that same manner. If we're talking about inverse correlation, you can have investments that actually on down days in public markets take advantage in short stocks, take advantage of that downward movement. And so they'll move in the opposite direction. So correlation is really important because when you try to diversify portfolios by adding in these other types of investments, you're trying to reduce volatility. You're trying to add things that are moving independently or inversely of each other. And so in addition to adding this real estate investment, you want this real estate exposure for the yield, but you're also doing it for the diversification benefit. But if you do it in a public format, it's traded daily and it tends to act very similarly. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go ahead. So we say that they're much more highly correlated together. Yeah.
3: So yeah, some of the examples when we mm-hmm. talk to clients and we say, look, you know, you have one company that makes snow skis. And if you want some diversification, do you want to invest in another company that makes mittens? Because they're going to act probably very similarly. Or do you want to act, do you invest in a company that makes tennis rackets, which is going to be uncorrelated? The snow skis and the tennis rackets are not going to act the same as the snow skis and, and the mittens. And, you know, and we also like to say not all the horses on the merry-go-round are up at the same time, right? So if your portfolio is properly diversified, there should always be some portion of that portfolio that is underperforming the rest of the portfolio. And that's really what we're trying to find is what are those things that zig when everything else is zagging, right?
2: Exactly, exactly that. And so if you add an investment in private real estate, you end up with less correlated investments real estate overall tends to be less correlated than its public counterpart. And what you're getting there is investments in actual tangible real estate properties. And you can get it across multiple different structures. So in 2016, there was some legislation change to allow for a non-traded REIT, which is a much more, and we'll get into this democratized- meaning it's investor friendly. It's registered differently with the SEC, provides more transparency, more liquidity. Uh, it, it values more often, has a lower client qualification. So investors under the accredited investor standard can invest it in private real estate. And we've really seen that uh, part of real estate investment expand. Everybody has been talking about the, the NTRs, the non-traded REITs. You can still get private investment in real estate in a traditional capital call structure. Uh, And we see that for the more tertiary investments, like if you want to, or niche investments, if you want to focus your real estate exposure in public storage, for example, you can find a traditional drawdown structure that is a term fund for 10 years and they take capital and they find investments for the first half and then they sell those investments in the second half. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, and I think that's an important point, too, because even looking at the different private real estate funds, they can have different approaches. And some may be going more for commercial properties and focusing on warehouses and other people may be going on student housing or housing for the elderly, or they may be going for office space, though that's not particularly a
0: very popular <laughs> <laughs> no it is not <laughs> same, same type of question but let's let's talk equities now so how is private equities different than publicly traded equities you touched on a lot of that you know under that real estate umbrella but let's kind of go a step further
2: and I love this part of what I do because I think it, a lot of people don't really understand this very well so if you think about the world of publicly traded stocks, you think all the mutual funds that are out there, all the ETFs are out there, um, but they're really all kind of trading the same number of stocks. They're just doing right. it in different percentages of that particular portfolio. Um, that number of publicly traded stocks that you can get exposure to by going on to your, you know, th- by going on to any kind of, um, of um, stock
0: trading platform. Yep. Yeah,
2: trading platform. Thank yeah. you. Uh, By going on to any trading platform out there, so you can, you know, the S&P 500, you can get access to that or the Dow Jones, you can get access to the stocks there. So the number of stocks that we have been able to trade since the 1990s has fallen precipitously. So in the 1990s, it kind of peaked out at almost 10,000 names. And since then, Sarbanes-Oxley and the regulatory environment around taking a company public which is what you do to get in on that stock exchange has changed it is now more expensive it's it's you know much harder you have a lot more people to answer to and so what we've seen is that 10,000 number is now actually closer to 6,000 and 5 years ago that was closer to 4500 so it has really dramatically changed yeah we've so got 6,000 names to create entire portfolios out of in your large and your mid and your small caps and your mutual funds and your ETFs. Now, we think there's approximately 6 million private companies out there. So what do I mean? Just a couple
0: more. Just a couple more. (laughs) (laughs)
2: It's
3: a small factor of change there.
2: What do I mean by private companies? It's just a company that is not able to be traded in public stock exchanges. So somebody owns that company, whether it be another company or whether it be a mom and pop shop where an individual owns that company, there's 6 million or so out there. So effectively, if you're kind of ignoring that space, you're ignoring 99.9% of companies that are available to invest in. And here's the kicker. So since the 1990s, we've seen not just the number of stocks contract, but everything is getting kind of highly squished at the top, very, very correlated, very concentrated. So the top 10 names in the S&P 500 make up 30% of the market cap of the value of that. So everybody's talking about these top seven names today that have really the only ones that have gone up in portfolios. (laughs) That's exactly it. It's highly concentrated, which means if you're not invested in those seven names, forget it.
3: Thank you so much for repeating what we've been telling our clients.
2: I was just thinking, it sounds like an echo
0: chamber in here. (laughs) The
2: problem there is that again, you're not getting that that good diversification by investing in those public markets anymore because everything is concentrated and it's all correlated, and so you also see then private companies are staying private a lot longer and IPOing at these massive, right? Facebook ipo'd at 110 billion dollars uh uber ipo'd at 160 billion dollars so it's a lot of growth from zero to 160 billion dollars to take advantage of on the private side and so then the argument is always well these are mom and pop shops like you don't know what these companies are going to do we don't know what the growth prospects really are like You know these are small. Well, even if you reduce that to companies with a hundred million dollars in revenue, so arguably those would be large and mid cap companies. Those are pretty large companies. A hundred million dollars in annual revenue. Only fifteen percent of those companies are publicly traded. Effectively, you're ignoring 85% of large and mid-cap companies by not exposing their portfolio to the private equity and debt investments out there.
3: And you mentioned before how, how things are changing, and that's one of the things that we bring up with the clients, too, in talking about private equity, because the whole idea of an IPO has really changed. I mean, it used to be the case, hey, I'm a company, we're doing well. I need to raise some more capital. What's the way to raise capital? There's various ways, but one of those is to IPO, go to, to the public markets, make our, you know, sell part of our company to the to the public. But when you talk and Facebook is an excellent example, Facebook didn't IPO to raise capital. <laughs> and they already had huge investors uh, but, you know, by whether it was Fidelity or it was Morgan Stanley, or it was whoever else had already invested in Facebook. So it's now more of a liquidity event for those people who have already obtained a good amount of that growth that you were talking about while it was private. And now they're looking for a liquidity event to reap some of their profits
2: back. That's exactly it, yeah. to monetize their investment.
3: Yep, great. Um, what about debt? So we talked about real estate, we talked about equity, what about debt and loans?
2: So when we talk about debt and loans, we already invest in debt on the public market. So you're a lend- when you buy a bond, especially in the pro- in the public sector, it's not a municipal, you're lending a company money. Right. And you do that same thing. In private markets. You're lending private companies money. And the landscape around private debt has really changed, especially recently, because you see the these middle market banks, these regional banks, really reduce in the number of, of banks that we've seen, the number the size of the banks and the number of the banks available to provide. And
3: the amount of debt that they can carry on their balance sheet.
2: Awesome. And the amount of debt has dwindled quite a bit. And so Big firms really don't have the appetite to give, to loan money to private companies anymore. It's just, there's a lot of due diligence that goes into it. There's a lot of oversight that goes into it and they just don't have the appetite. And so then you're seeing these kind of small local banks that are doing it, but they do it on a much smaller scale. So these larger private companies, the ones I just talked about with a hundred million dollars in revenue, really don't have anywhere to find people to banks to loan money to them, so there is this has been this big expansion in private debt firms, firms that specialize in lending money to private companies, and the benefit of that is that you can you can really increase the yield in your portfolio because these are not done with uh, you know the the regular. Uh, lending rates of you know three or four or five percent, depending upon what LIBOR is, these are much higher. And sometimes they're much shorter term. So you can get a quick turnaround in your investment. Uh, and we know that the companies that are investing money in this category, we've seen a huge influx in interest in providing money to private companies. And we've seen a huge influx in interest From private companies to get that money. And so those covenants um, are pretty, they're very similar across different firms. The one caveat I would say there is that you've got to invest with someone that you know can act upon those covenants, should there be some challenging market cycle events, i.e. a recession or a breakdown, blowout and rates, something that causes some inflection point in markets. And that's why manager selection really matters. I was going to talk about that a little later too.
3: Right. And the dispersion between good managers and bad managers, which is a much bigger deal in private markets.
2: Well, yeah, because if you've got a private debt manager and they're lending to a cruise ship company, and part of the deal is if this cruise ship company defaults on their loan, they get 12 cruise ships. You've got to know that that right. can handle selling 12 cruise ships. I mean, right.
0: yeah.
2: So you've got to be able to manage that, have the relationships in place to be able to understand that market
0: and sell those assets. Mm-hmm. If they have to. So let's talk about hedge, fund, hedge funds for a minute. Um, such a broad term. Let's talk about some of the different types of hedge funds.
2: Oh my goodness, there's so many different types of <laughs> <laughs> How
0: much time do you got? No. <laughs>
3: yeah. uh, we're just dipping our toe. We're not going we're not going in for the deep dive. <laughs>
2: yeah. So, uh, in the different hedge funds major styles are macro, relative value, equity long short uh equity hedge uh and and then in within those you've got multiple different sub sub styles in the macro universe they're investing in everything that's you've got volatility you've got currencies you've got bonds you've got stocks you've got everything within one place and that's great for a core holding in a portfolio where you're looking to diversify you can get great diversification in a macro hedge fund um the frustrating part about a macro hedge fund is it tends to not ever outperform equities. It tends to always underperform, but it does so at a much lower volatility. Mm-hmm. So you're getting back better risk adjusted returns, but that can be frustrating sometimes to see. Well, markets were up 20% and this macro fund was up eight. Right. It's doing its job, but it was right. Doing well, right. Um, not designed generally to perform. They can, not designed to do that. Relative value takes advantage of fixed income markets generally. Uh, So other things within fixed income, sometimes there's private debt in a relative value fund. Sometimes there's arbitrage of differences in in interest rates, um, the relationship of, of, you know, taking advantage of differences in interest rates. And um, you can really get some good, yield in a relative value hedge fund to increase yield in portfolios that was a much bigger conversation over the last 10 years when the risk-free rate wasn't hovering around four but i think if you were to fast forward 18 months from now we'd we'd be talking about this as a as an opportunity outside of traditional um bond investments for increasing yield in portfolios
3: and And then oh sorry go ahead well, you finish
2: and then an equity hedge it's it's basically kind of what we talked about where you can take advantage of stocks going up you can also take advantage of stocks going down that's where you can short different individual names in the um, stock markets and you can also do that with options as an overlay. So you're kind of then either increasing yield on portfolios or kind of putting guardrails on those portfolios um, so that they don't get completely out of control. We've seen some really good opportunities in equity hedge. We've also seen some really hard periods in equity hedge recently.
3: And thanks. That's a great overview of of those. And I think you touched on an important point that we want to talk a little bit more about, which is the risk adjusted return. Right. It's not just your return, it's how much risk are you taking to get that return? And uh, and when we talk about alternatives with our clients, we really focus on that major benefit. And yes, do they, you know, are there alternatives that get those, you know, super high returns in a given calendar year? Sure, there are. Most of the allocation we do in this alternative space is not targeted to do that. We're not swinging for the fences. What we really like to see are those onesies and twosies that add up over time to a really stable return and play a role of adding not only excess return, but adding stability to the portfolio. And when everything else isn't doing well, that these can help prop up. Can you talk a little bit about the, the role that plays in, in diversification and in portfolios?
2: Absolutely. And and that all comes down to that correlation aspect too, of how things move in portfolios together. But generally the best places to get diversification in portfolios and a great example of how this would be, would be infrastructure and real estate. And so when we see that we can get, you know, 20 or 25% a year in the s and p, we're doing that during really great years, and we're doing that at a sixteen and a half percent volatility. That means that that number can be sixteen and a half percent from its top and its bottom. So the variation or the variability in your outcome is huge. You don't know how to you can't predict with any accuracy where your portfolio will end up if you've got a standard deviation of sixteen and a half percent. And that's what historic s and p numbers have been for volatility. The standard deviation is the, the amount that it moves up and down. With infrastructure and real estate, specifically in private investments, your volatility figures are much, much lower, especially in infrastructure, where the fund kind of just plunks along and does, you know, 2% per quarter. And that volatility figure is in the one5 or 2.5% space. So you don't get a lot of movement in those figures. It does tend to add that great An uncorrelated aspect to portfolios. And with that, you're reducing your your, uh, potential for variability in your outcome. And you're better able to predict what your portfolio will do over time. We call it a sharp ratio. When you reduce the volatility, even if you're not outperforming everything else in your portfolio you reduce the risk and you enhance your risk adjusted returns for every single percentage of risk you get better return maybe not returns but
3: yeah it's our it's our miles per gallon so to speak on on how much return do you get per unit of risk yeah right
0: i think it's important talking about it because i think for those that maybe are newer to the asset class When they think hedge fund, they may think high octane, you know, to the moon returns where that's not what we're talking about here. It's more the smooth return profile, um, getting some exposure, but different from the other stuff in their portfolio. So thanks for clarifying that.
2: I think that's a a widely misunderstood concept. Mm -hmm. It truly, truly is. People think hedge funds, well, what am I getting for locking up capital, right? And we actually have a great slide in our guide to alts presentation, it's the diversification slide where we add a 30% allocation to a sixty traditional 60-40 portfolio. And we look at what happened from 1989 through 2022. And that 30% allocation is 10% hedge funds, 10% private equity, 10% private real estate. And with that, you increased the return in a 60-40 portfolio by about a percent, just under a percent, and you reduced the volatility by almost 2% over that time frame. And if you did that back in 1989, you would really reduce your variability and you'd be able to much better predict where you end up. Mm-hmm.
3: And we want to talk about structure. And we also want to talk about fees and, and, of course, the history and how things are changing. But you you on that point of that diversification and that 30% allocation, so when we review portfolios for uh, new clients, uh, that are coming to see us and we look at what they have and we start talking to them about what they have and why they have it. We don't see a lot of alternatives. I mean, sure. You may see the occasional liquid fund or maybe a commodity fund here and there. Um, but generally speaking, a not, not any of the private investments that we've talked about and not a large allocation. why do you think that is? Why do you think there hasn't been a broader a- adoption of the asset class?
2: Oh, they're clunky. The asset class is clunky. It's, you know, it it has first the structures are clunky and the investments are hard to understand and they're opaque. Uh, the structures, it's traditionally These structures have been only reserved for ultra wealthy people. You've got to be a QP, we call it, you know, five million dollars in net worth or investable assets to be able to even touch this stuff. And then on top of that, you've got which traditionally have been seven to 10. And now we're seeing ones that are 15 years where you've got to commit to being an investor in this fund for 15 year terms <laughs> and sometimes longer. And then you've got capital calls. So in this traditional private equity structure, a capital call is for the first five years or so, y- you commit to being investor, but they're gonna call your commitment over a number of years as they find investments. And then over the, the last half of that term, they're gonna distribute that capital. So you never know when they're gonna need your money and you never know when you're gonna get it back. And then with that, you also have blind pool risk. You don't know what they're going to invest in. You're just taking a bet on the firm or on the. Yeah. I- and that's really hard. So it's opaque, it doesn't value very often. Uh, there's this J curve effect where that first half where they're calling capital, you get negative returns. that's really frustrating for clients. I can't tell you the number of times I would have, I sat at my desk at Wells Fargo and I get a call four or five years into a 10 year term private equity fund that had the potential for great returns, but get a call from a client saying, what is this thing? Can we get out? (laughs) No, sorry. Yeah. You can sell them on a secondary market, but you're gonna take a big you know depreciation. Yeah. yeah. Haircut.
3: yeah. But that has changed. Yeah. Right? That has changed a lot. And we've been using alternative investments for decades. And you know, I shouldn't say decades, I guess. That really makes me sound old, but yeah. You know, but we've <laughs> been, been usually,
0: doing it for decades. You've
3: been doing like a decade
0: and a half. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but that has radically changed over the last you know, few years, and so now we're seeing more liquidity, different structures, and that democratization that you mentioned earlier on. Why don't you touch on that a little bit and talk about the the sort of new structures and the lower minimums and the shorter time frames and that kind of thing?
2: One of the big themes that we see today is this advent of these democratized structures, and and I it was great. I I was in my interview for J.P. Morgan, and my boss said democratized private real private investments, and I said, I'm sorry, what? What do you even mean? Uh, It's taking those clunky structures and registering them differently with the SEC and and therefore providing more information to the SEC. So they will now have more transparency, more regulatory oversight. And many of these are what we call evergreen. So there is no term. That means that the fund is designed to live into perpetuity. Your, your non-traded rates of the world that everybody kind of has familiarity with, those are all evergreen. They're meant to last forever. Um, what you get in an evergreen fund that's democratized is immediate diversification. You get everything that's in the fund. You don't have to wait for that to be built up like you did with the private equity stuff. You get lower minimums. So 25,000, 2,500 in some cases, minimums. Traditionally, it was 100,000 or 250 or even a million. You get regular liquidity in some shape, form, or fashion, whether it's monthly, quarterly, or semi-annually. Generally, that's what they offer. And then you get lower accreditors and uh, accredited investor qualifications. So traditional CPs now, you can be an accredited investor or below. And sometimes you even get a 1099 instead of a K1. So no capital calls, no J curve, lower fees, more oversight, um, better diversification. And so that really has moved the investment of private private, um, investments, alternative investments into really these can be in most Mm -hmm. portfolios. And now we just need to get there. So 60% of uh, investors out there make up the total assets in the total investments. 60% are private wealth investors. They only make up less than 5% of alternative investment allocations. So we're severely under allocated compared to our institutional counterparts. Their investments can be up to 50%. So that begs the question of what is an allocation? what should a recommended allocation look like, right? Right. Great.
3: Plus the CPAs, our client CPAs love us a lot more when we stick to the 1099s and the... Uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> and love the we, we had a fund on the platform that had, it was that had five K-1s. They were one big one and then four state K-1s. <laughs>
3: Well, and actually, I mean, and that's not a small point, right? So, you know, when we look at these investments, and some of them still do have K1s, and some of them are still great investments. And, you know, depending on the client's net worth, and depending on how we want to attack that, but you know what we don't want to do for the clients is have a client come in here and they want to you know they have the capacity to maybe invest fifty thousand dollars and so we do a fifty thousand dollar investment we don't do it but if we do a fifty thousand dollar investment they get a k1 and then the cpa is turning around and charging them two or three thousand dollars to process this one k1 that really draws down the return of the overall portfolio so you have to be careful about what you're getting into why you're getting into it and who you're getting into it for
2: that is absolutely true, and it it really is this this idea of the we call it the tax tail wagging the investment dog. I mean,
3: yeah,
2: it is a much bigger um, pain point for clients than I think asset managers understand, and so now they're starting to get it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so we touched a little bit on fees earlier on. What are you seeing in terms of trends for fees, um, and how has this changed over time? Clearly, the democ- democratization of alts has changed, but how is that impacting kind of the fee structure for these investments?
2: So traditionally, the fee structure is what we call a two and 20, 2% management fee and a 20% performance fee. The management fee covers the expenses of the fund. The performance fee is you're sharing in that profit. So they take 20 cents of every dollar they make for the investor. That's kind of the traditional. Some funds, especially in hedge funds, where they have multi-managers, you may not even know what those fees are uh, because they are they are paying out these PMs when they succeed. And, and but in reality, you know, we we had a fund on the platform that had, was a multi-manager fund, and and you, they pay out these fees, but they still had incredible performance. So the thing you've got to look at is what is the what is the net.
3: Exactly. Yep.
2: Performance net of all fees, and if the performance in this particular fund was twelve to fifteen percent net over the last fifteen years, okay, you know I- I'm okay paying four or five or six percent because of the structure of the fund. So that's one scenario. But what we've seen with this democratization is really a reduction in fee, yep. uh, especially for these these diversified evergreen structures. We're seeing a lot more one and a quarter percent and twelve. Percent performance fee, um, or a one percent management fee and a ten percent performance fee, and oftentimes they will have a high watermark and a hurdle, and the hurdle is they've got to get their investors 7% returns before they'll start taking that performance fee. So it really is incentivizing the managers to do well so that they can finally take their share of the profits later on after that hurdle. So a 10% performance fee and a 5% hurdle or something like that.
3: And, you know, the whole fee discussion is a big deal because, you know, particularly in this environment where there's been fee pressure and we see ETFs coming down with expense ratios and mutual funds coming down with expense ratios, and you're introducing this asset class to somebody that hasn't experienced before. And they're saying, okay, well, I can get my Vanguard uh, mutual fund. Not that I'm recommending that because I'm just throwing up the name Vanguard. (laughs) No no recommendations, by the way. (laughs) Talk to your investment professionals. Right. Talk to us. Right, uh, but very low expense ratios, and you know, or even basically free. And then now I'm looking at an investment where you're telling me, oh, it's one and a quarter, and then they get this, you know, this maybe this share of my profits over a certain hurdle rate, but. Looking at it on a net basis, net of fees, what are you getting? Net of all fees and net of taxes, a very important question, right? Are we being tax efficient with this? So net of fees, net of taxes, and for the amount of risk that we're taking, is that an appropriate investment? and what is it adding to the portfolio?
2: Absolutely. And that so that is of paramount importance. What are we getting on the benefits? So, generally, alternative investments are are kind of something that clients look at to solve for a problem in portfolios. And we talked a lot about some of these, but they're coming to alts because they want to, it's a solutions, outcome-oriented investment. So they want to solve for diversification. They want to solve for income. They want to solve for Alpha or access to private markets, and they sometimes and today it's it's a, something going on in the macro world, you know, in hedging inflation. And so we really do look have to look at what am I trying to do in my portfolio? Am I trying to diversify or or add those less correlated investments? Am I trying to earn more yield, and what am I willing to pay for it? But the democratization really has brought down. You're right, the fee pressure, and we're doing it more efficiently, and we're doing it with more transparency. And so that's. That's changed dramatically over the last, I'd say, even five years.
3: Absolutely. So we've we've talked about sort of what what they are. We've talked about structures. We've talked about types. We've talked about fees. So what you know, before we wrap up, and I won't let you get back to your professional job. uh, (laughs) What are some of the key takeaways? What are some of the themes you're seeing? What are some of the best ideas? Um, Maybe leave us with a couple of thoughts. The J.P. Morgan. School of thought on alternative.
2: (laughs) So I'll I'll leave you with a couple of lessons that I learned over the number of years I've been investing in alts. And we've touched a little bit on this, but because of the structures, the traditional structures of private investments, especially when we talk about private equity, um, it was really, really difficult to get the recommended diversification, even amongst private equity portfolios, uh, without... Without having massive portfolios and massive allocations. Also, for example, we pound the table on getting multiple vintage year investment in private equity and multiple sub-style investment in private equity. So for example, you want to have a 2023 fund, a 2022, a 2021, a 2020, and you want to have a secondaries investment and a buyout and a venture and a private real estate and a private debt and. In order to do that with these minimums of $100,000 $100, and $250,000, your portfolios had to be thirty and $40,000,000, and your right. allocation to be a third of that, right? <laughs> and so the themes that we're seeing today is this democratization really allows us to get all of that in one place. So how do we think about allocating to portfolios? Well, we at Wells, when I was on that team, when we did these customized portfolios, would think, what do I want to do in my, with my core? and then what do i want to add as my satellite and those core investments were often very diversified evergreen democratized structures so you can get great exposure to an evergreen private equity fund uh, with a bunch of different investments underlying i mean you're in some of those funds you're getting thousands of private company exposure which is mm-hmm. wonderful for diversification um And then you can be a little bit more purposeful with a satellite allocation to maybe a venture fund, or if you want to have exposure to healthcare in China and India, okay, that's great to do with a satellite fund. Mm -hmm. So a core and satellite approach to private investments really is helpful, especially if that core is your democratized structures that are more evergreen. And it's not as difficult to get the recommended diversification. Um, Some of the other themes are how do we play what's going on in the market today. So hedging inflation is a big one. And our two best ideas are real estate and infrastructure to hedge inflation. And primarily the reason that we think that is because we've seen it happen. When inflation is above the median and rising or (laughs) above the median and falling, real estate outperforms. And both of those tend to be commodity pass-throughs, so that means they're passing on the expense onto the consumer. So, example of this in infrastructure is: it's many of these investments are in regulated utilities, and when it gets more expensive for that utility to do business, it just raises its hand to the regulators and says it's more expensive to do business. And the regulators say, "Okay, great, increase the cost for the consumer." (laughs) So you get great inflation hedge there, and. Uh, some of the other questions that we've seen recently is, how do I play where we are in this market cycle? So we know we're at this kind of questionable, impending, maybe, maybe not recession, but we've seen a, a real a, a revaluation of private equity and private real estate specifically. And so how do I take advantage of the dislocation opportunities, the difference between the where we were six months ago and where we are today? Um, you know, And that is... If you can have access to a fund that has no mature assets, that's great. A dry powder fund, a fund that maybe is growing or new in the secondaries markets and in private real estate. We're seeing a ton of opportunity in secondaries today. Um, It really is kind of this unique place, maybe like sitting on the sidelines with a bunch of cash in 2009, waiting to invest in equity. So, and then the final thing we see a lot today is how do we monetize the energy transition? I would recommend thinking about that from a private market standpoint. How can I get an investment in whether it be infrastructure that is moving companies along the energy transition, invest in electrification of everything or investing in private companies on that high tech side that are focused on um like tesla pre-tesla kind of things spacex Mm -hmm. or excellent
3: awesome well thank you so much this has been great we we could keep going for a long time i mean we took a really really broad topic Mm -hmm. (laughs) and touched on a lot of key points but appreciate you taking your time so that's our episode for today thank you for listening if you found this topic interesting or useful please let us know Or if there are other topics you'd like us to address, let us know that too. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for being invested.
1: The RAND group is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. This is not offered to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The Rand Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties express or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The Rand Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.